Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Cultural Capital. I'm Andy Hazel. I'm Eloise Ross. And I'm Anders Furs. And this week we're celebrating our first birthday. It's been a whole year since we sat down and critiqued Jodie Foster's Money Monster. Yay! Um, <laughs> everyone remembers that. And this week we're reviewing 20th Century Women. We'll look back at Anna Kokkinos' 2008 Melbourneian drama Blessed and share our picks from movie and cultural capital film diary. But first, adjust your projectile repellent bracelets of submission and ready your weaponry for Wonder Woman. The gods gave us many gifts. One day you'll know them all. This is where we keep them. It's beautiful. Who would wield it? Only the fiercest among us even could. And that is not you, Diana. You will train her harder than any Amazon before her. Five times harder. Ten times harder. Never let your guard down. You expect the battle to be fair. Until she is better than even you. While it is bookended by a present-day modern world Diana, played by Gal Godot, participating in the exploits of Wayne Enterprises, thus framing it within the larger and continuing DC film universe, this version of Wonder Woman is a strong standalone origin story about the Amazonian warrior princess, with an extended setup on the island of Themyscira that establishes Diana's strength, curiosity and resourcefulness from an early age before the broad demands of a world war, director Patty Jenkins allows her superhero to be personalised and to have some genuine depth. When their island is discovered by cartoonishly evil German soldiers, Diana leaves the Amazonian haven set up by the god Zeus on a mission with American soldier Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine, to stop the war and save the world. Even in this human dimension, Jenkins maintains a sort of uncanny sense of reality, painting World War I with an almost cartoonish aesthetic, again, assisted by the rhythm of the score music, I think. But it isn't excessive, and so her film really respects the story and its wartime debut in 1941 that gave its readers at the time something through which to make sense of their immediate reality, while also giving them a sense of thrill and escapism. This film is not perfect, but it's an extraordinarily thoughtful depiction of a superhero, and I think this must be, in some ways, because it is helmed by a woman, the first superhero film of this present era to be so. Anders, did Wonder Woman return your faith in the superhero movies to instill a sense of wonder? It definitely did instill in me a sense of wonder, which I think is quite interesting. I thought this was a really interesting movie for several reasons. The first thing I want to echo what you said there is the level of filmmaking craft that Jenkins brings to this film, I thought was wonderful. You know, shots last longer than three seconds. You can follow what's happening in the fight scenes, which is a key thing, I thought. Um, the action is very comprehensible in a way that it not always is for me anyway, when it comes to superhero, this genre of filmmaking. And I know I sort of sound like a grumpy, befuddled David Stratton-esque character when I say this. <laughs> but um, yeah, I really I really like that. You know, she doesn't patronise her audience in terms of the filmmaking. And also the screenplay doesn't patronise us. This was a big thing I really liked. It doesn't try to have its cake and eat it too, which a lot of contemporary Hollywood movies do. They sort of gesture towards moments of drama and tension and then pull back um, or they do something dramatic and then say, psych, and you kind of feel cheated. Um, but with this, I didn't feel like that at all. Um, it had a very sort of satisfying, dramatic 
arc, unlike a lot of other superhero movies. You know, it does gesture to the rest of the DC Comics universe through, most notably through this Wayne Enterprises um, logo that we see at the start and a few other little things. But it's not, you're not feeling like you're sort of in one part of this ginormous puzzle that feels like endless, you'll be endlessly filling forever. It's a nice sort of standalone story. And what I found particularly interesting though, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, is the film's politics. So the movie set in World War One very clearly positions the Americans and British horses as the good guys um, against these cartoonishly evil villains. And the most interesting moment for me happens about halfway through when Wonder Woman basically like leads this charge of Allied uh, soldiers into an occupied French town and across the like no man's land of the Western Front. And I thought that was like a really interesting. Up until now in this film, she spends the whole movie fighting to be who she wants to be surrounded by men who are like, you know, very patronizing towards her. And here she is in this enthralling, cathartic and quite militaristic moment of, I don't know if it's pseudo propaganda or what it is, but it's really, I, I, I was very emotionally moved by it. And I was quite concerned about the level to which I was emotionally moved by this scene of this war scene. Uh, well, I thought that was a really strange one because up until that point, she had been very fixated on one particular goal which was to seek out this particular... The God of War. The God of War, yes, yes. yes. But then here she's suddenly confronted with the reality of war, which she was confronted with in the very key scene earlier on on a beach, where she's suddenly brought into the 20th century. She's shown death. She's shown all these sorts of really, really transformative moments. Yeah, they're killing children is what she says, I think, at that point. And that is what, you know... So she's taken away from this and she decides to go and, you know, free this town after she meets this mother and child. And it seemed like a really strange sudden reorientation. Like she was like forgotten about her key goal and decided to go off and do this, you know, amazing militaristic endeavor, which draws fire away from the men who can then go and turn it around. Um, it was one of a number of things in the film which I thought detracted from it slightly because there is this really strange juxtaposition of tone where you've got this real like reality, the reality of World War One, like these horrible, brutal situations. Then you've also got CGI nonsense happening all over the top of it, and it's this kind of weightless thing where you've got this brutality and then you've got this you know, 20th, 20th, 21st century sense of fun and what you expect from a superhero movie, which is, you know, CGI battles and there to be really not that much stakes. There's I mean, isn't that kind of like possibly... I, what I really loved about this movie is just that I think it did so well in speaking to the original comics. And, I mean, isn't that the purpose of the comics, that they kind of... I mean, they were fiction. They were a bit ridiculous. They were escapist. They were obviously cartoons in the 1940s. That was the way people got into them and came to understand this character through this, you know, this clear kind of other world. But also it was doing a whole lot of really serious kind of emotional searching through mm. yeah, it was a cathartic. national options mm. and yeah, nation's options. And it was a little bit, you know, it was propaganda, but it was also really cathartic, as you say, for for citizens of America at the time. So isn't that kind of the same thing, just in a, a new Yeah, era? I think there are ways of juggling that. Yeah. But I think this was, uh, the jumps in tone at the least left me a little colder sometimes, even though I found a lot to love about this. I yeah. think it's, that's really interesting. And I think too, it really speaks to our current sociocultural moment as well, not just in its overt feminism, um, but in how it sort of, this film explicitly admits that human beings can be flawed, even bad people, but it still offers us this optimistic argument for hope anyway, which I think is quite an interesting thing. You're talking about like the final battle kind of thing. Yes. That was what I had the weirdest response to, because obviously, and Anders and I 
kind of squealed with glee when we saw Danny Houston's name in the credits <laughs> when we were at this movie because he's great and he is such an exciting, very cartoonish, not very dynamic or, I don't know, not very innovative in any ways, but he was a great villain. But he's not the ultimate villain. No, There no, is another yeah, villain. Yeah. And that explanation, his this ultimate villain's explanation of why he was doing what he was doing and Diana's response, I found that very strange, perhaps too quick in that moment. The end, uh, we didn't really get to... I felt like what she was doing was also flawed and she also had a decision to make, yeah. which was not a perfect decision. It was not one no. dimensional. And exactly. I don't think that, I don't think that the film, perhaps because we were so invested in making Wonder Woman such a glorious superhero at this point in time, you know, in 2017, I don't think it really made enough of the fact that she was also making an imperfect decision in her mm -hmm. acts. Yeah, right. And I thought that was a really interesting gesture away from the maudlin sort of, oh, we are all one kind of stuff that you can sometimes get in this kind of a That's film. true. But doesn't he say that to her because he doesn't believe her? Because he doesn't believe that she's got these great powers? Because he thinks that she's just still, even after all of this, he still sometimes somehow thinks that she's making it up? I think that was why he said it to her, you know, and then she's like, you don't believe me. Well, one, the, the part of the introductory voiceover at the very beginning of the film is a statement in which she says, what one does when faced with the truth is more difficult than you think. So she's kind of explaining to you that there's going to be some moral quandaries going along. And actually, after watching a show like Twin Peaks, which puts good and bad very simply into literally different bodies of the same person, to see such a grey area explored mm. in a superhero movie was, quite, was kind of unusual, I thought. Yeah, it was a really... It was really honest, and I think in Gal Gadot's yeah. face, you can see her figuring this out. Yeah. And she's not obnoxious, and she's not arrogant, and she doesn't think she knows. Yeah. And part of that is really organic in the fact that she does come from this Amazonian island, and she doesn't come from the real world, and so she is learning and she's not yet, you know, cocky in this like self-reflexive way that some superhero exactly. movies exactly. treat or allow their superheroes to behave. I think that it's really beautiful the way that you kind of, she's figuring it out. And I've heard Absolutely. some people say that this movie is maybe, you know, a little chaste or something. I mean, I don't think because there's that one scene where all you get between Diana and Steve is a kiss and that's it. And I don't think that it necessarily needs to be a really sexy movie just on the first no, they address, on the first level. They address but, that fairly early on. Yeah, but <laughs> also it's her yeah. figuring out how to be in the world. And so I don't necessarily yeah. think it would be characteristic for her to all of a sudden just be this really, you know, sexually powerful woman. Yeah, um, and actually I think some of these were the best parts of the film with some of the moments. There was a lot of really great moments, like where she discovers ice cream. There's a beautiful montage of her oh, putting yeah, on clothes. Yeah, 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 there's yeah. this really great thing of her just coming to this steampunk envisaged world of Europe during the First World War. So it was visually, I thought, really, really striking in a lot of scenes. But then also just to see her gradually like acclimatised to the, society, the social moors while wandering around with a sword and a magic whip and a shield and stuff like that. And that also introduced us to Lucy Davis's Etta Candy, who I thought was a bit of a scene stealer as well. I thought her weakest... I think she's always a scene stealer. Yeah, but her weakest scene was in the trailer and made me go, oh, this isn't going to... Yeah, yeah. She gets loads of great lines. She's really got a, she balances the humour and the suffragette focus, you know, really well, I thought. Yeah, that's true. I wanted to bring up 
And I don't even know why I'm giving this guy the time of day, but it kind of got a bit crazy on Twitter. Someone at The Guardian uh, wrote a review that this reviewer's name was Steve Rose. He wrote a review that was getting a lot of attention, particularly for this line that he wrote. Confusingly, Diana later explains that, and I quote, men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. (laughs) And everyone's like, it ain't confusing at all. You know, so this guy is, you know, we feel sorry for him because what the hell kind of life (laughs) does this line suggest that he has? But also um, he later refers to Themyscira as a sapphic utopia. And I'm like, how can you say one and the other? I mean, clearly all he's trying to do is write a a review full of, you know, one-liners, you know, zingers, rather than, I think, give a thoughtful response to this film. Um, But I just think that he and a lot of people who uh, seem to be reacting to this movie in the same way just seem really afraid of anything where women are confident enough without the support of men. Um, And that's, you know, textually with Wonder Woman and also extra textually with Patty Jenkins, the director of this Mm, film. And Alamo Drafthouse's female-only screening, which became a flashpoint for a lot of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's really troubling, that that whole Mm. dialogue around that. Well, Mm. it's not a dialogue, I suppose. The barrage um, of responses that they've got to (laughs) that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do think that it has this really, like, you know, comedic commentary on gender constraints of society. As you said, Andy, when she goes, when she gets to London firstly and she's, you know, trying to figure out, she's like, she's like why do women wear this? Why do women allow themselves <laughs> to be, um, you know, bound up in this clothing? And so, you know, that she's figuring this out, the way that women are treated, and she gets treated that way in her in herself. You know, she's surrounded by this motley crew of fighters that don't believe she has any power. So when she is figuring out, because it's an origin story, you know, so when she's figuring out that she has power herself, which she doesn't necessarily know because her mother has not told her that she's, in fact, the... She's just very important. Let's just say she's very important. That she's very important (laughs) and that she does have a lot of strength. She's figuring it out on her own terms and that's what's really great about this, I think. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Totally agreed. I I don't know. I just really... I really liked it. I thought it was a really good comic book movie. It set out to do something and it does it really well. I thought Gatto was fantastic. Yeah, as this sort of woman who sort of figuring everything out as she's figuring the world out as well. I also thought Chris Pine was very good yeah, too. Yeah, same. I think he was I've never really thought anything about him. Really. <laughs> I was just going, yeah, whatever. But no, I, I, he was quite charismatic and his character was quite charismatically drawn as well. We talked about this a little bit before, but this Native American character who is just for yeah. some reason in the Belgian you know, countryside... Steve and Diana kind of, you know, they're making their way to the, to the front um, and they come across Chief, played by Eugene Braverock, who was a neutral character depicted as perhaps capitalising on the war but really just trying to survive, I think, and remain, you know, someone who's not attacked. Now, I don't know what he's doing there. It's not really explained. I haven't read anywhere why it might be explained, but I found it really troubling the way that he was presented, you know, like... No one in their crew of, like, four or five men believed that Diana actually had powers, but the chief believed it. 
he he knew he he saw something mm. and then there's another way where he he says that he knows where something is he can sense it in the landscape and i was just like is this really cheap and lazy yes. the way that they're presenting and why is he there why is he there take him oh, out don't do it give him some you know don't make him so stereotyped mm-hmm. don't exoticize this other that you that you have you know like you know there's the film goes to such lengths to not exoticize exactly, yeah. wonder woman and the amazonians that why would it just take some cheap shots at a native american character that I had a real made me really uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I think most of my problems were similar. I'm still flummoxed as to why the Germans were speaking English to each other. There was um, this completely implausible ragtag bag of misfits who band together to save the day. Well, there was a whole bunch of CGI. That's, that's, that's a comic book movie. Wonder, right? well, this is my problem. Wonder yeah. Woman is not the only movie to have no, Germans speak is, English to each other. No, it's not. But it's also yet it's, another. Yeah, you wish that it would stop. It's a concession you have to make to make a comic book movie, which I think is the problem. I'm really excited that there's a comic book movie directed by a woman starring women, but it's still a comic book movie. There's still a whole bunch of concessions they have to make. It's it's essentially a lazy formulaic storyline that they seem to have to adhere. To particularly with origin stories where it's all an innocent is born they discover they've got powers they've got to go and be tested their parents have got to say sad goodbye they've got to go off and do x y and z hero's journey and it's just it's just tedious we've got like four ragnarok coming up which does look great we've got justice league coming up we've got transformers we've got planet of the apes we've got all these blockbuster things coming through and i just think there's better ways to spend 150 million dollars well yeah that's true but you know they're going to keep happening so i don't think we can say that they're formulaic like genre is inherently formulaic until it becomes something else and so the fact that we're kind of perhaps we are shifting towards something else we're getting another origin story which is really great because we've shifted away from that in the last couple of years i think into you know newer more modern versions and i imagine after this we'll move with wonder woman into the you know the present day which is Fine, might be a bit boring and, and whatever, but I just think that that is the nature of these $150 million well, I think we're, blockbusters. We're ready for so. another Nolan re- revamp of the comic book story. Even like Logan was really interesting. They had some really, really different uh, angles to take, which is still essentially a comic book movie. So I would just like some sort of creative permission to be given to these writers because it felt Variation. like I could feel Zack, Zack Snyder's influence as much as there was some fantastic storytelling, great acting, beautifully shot. That sort of stuff. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. Like the first third, really, I was totally on board with, and then it became CGI throwing things at each other. I, I don't know. I was with it right even to the... I mean, at the end, it gets a bit... I mean, it, it does embrace the comic book movie conventions to the extreme, and there's this, like, baddie versus goodie showdown, one-on-one kind of thing. And I even... I mean, that was quite absurd, but I was still with it. I don't know. I, she I throws would, a box at him. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, it's a superhero movie. I just want more. I think there's, I don't see why it has to be tied down to such so strict rules, and we have to be, yeah. you know, satisfied with with something that's fun. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. We should I be think, surprised. I think that was the weakest part of the film for me. Yeah. But overall, I still really, really dug it. Mm. Um, we haven't mentioned David Thewlis yet, who I thought was great. Or Robin Wright. Oh, Robin oh Wright. my God, yes. Robin Wright! Also yes. amazing. Yes. And yeah. just really be good. In yeah, bringing bring yeah, her Underwood vibes. Mm, I just want to finish on a quote from Dana Stevens, the film critic at Slate. She finished her own review, so I'm kind of poaching this a little good, bit. Good, I but, love um, Dana Stevens. You know, let's refer to, to that review. You should go read it. She finishes her review, Why shouldn't women grab our glowing lassoes of truth and choke the hell out of some latter-day incarnations of Aries? God knows the bastards are asking for it. Yeah, <laughs> nice one. <laughs> Stop. 
that. Thinking that you know everything that's going on. No, I don't. I just think that, you know, having your heart broken is a tremendous way to learn about the world. I see the shapes. I remember thumbnails. I see the shore. This is the really hard part. And then it gets better. And then it gets hard again. <laughs> Do you think you're happy? Seriously? Look, wondering if you're happy, it's a great shortcut to just being depressed. Mike Mills' 20th Century Women is a simple story about a mother's attempts to raise her son. In this case, the mother is Annette Benning's Dorothea Fields, who is using the people who happen to be living in her rambling Santa Barbara house in 1979. Annette Benning plays the matriarch who dispenses pearls of wisdom like Wondering if you're happy is a great shortcut to being depressed. Her son, Jamie, played by Lucas Jade Zuman, shares their house with Greta Gerwig's Abigail Porter, who is recovering from cervical cancer and dispensing feminist prose. Billy Crudup's handyman, William, is helping with the renovations. And Elle Fanning's Julie shares Jamie's bed most nights and is negotiating his affections for her. Mike Mills lavishes attention on each of these characters and Dorothea's mission to get a village to raise her child it goes wayward quite quickly. Anders, did these 20th century women hold your attention? Absolutely, they did. I really love this film, I think. And it's sort of, I mean, there's a few things going on. On the one hand, it sort of feels like this odd film essay about the ways in which various bits of popular culture help us create our identities. So, like, they reference uh, books, they read books, uh, the characters in this film listen to music, and it's all sort of catalogued with on-screen text, which is quite interesting. But really what makes this film interesting is it's essentially a study of Annette Benning's character, this Dorothea. She's a divorced single mum raising a teenage son, and she's based on Mike Mills' real mother, and he's written this based on his own experience growing up in California in the latter half of the 20th century. And I just thought Annette Benning was really, really good, really good as this woman who seems to be, she seems to be just keeping a sort of an emotional breakdown or some, or breakthrough, breakdown or breakthrough, just off the side of the horizon. Yeah, she doesn't quite get there. It's always just there, this sort of sense that they could maybe break through in their relationship mm. and they never quite do it, or they do it in little bits and bobs, which I found really, really interesting and really emotionally quite compelling, mm. I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's true. Uh, Dorothea Annette Benning is the main, you know, kind of character in this film and definitely the person who undergoes the greatest transformation and who we connect with the most as an audience. And I'm not saying that she's not, you know, she's not the most kind of prominent character, but I think that her relationship with her son and then her relationship with Abby and her son's relationship with Julie and then all of them together hanging out, what the three of these women illustrate is sort of the shift that happened in awareness of, you know, feminine identity and second wave feminism in the 1970s and really illustrate how difficult it was for women, for everyone, but also for women to understand themselves and to understand that they deserved more than being second-class citizens. And you can see in Dorothea's face and in those moments where, and as you said, you know, she's almost there, but she doesn't quite get there. You can see that she wants to believe that she deserves more, but she's so conditioned in her own oppression mm. 
because as the you know her son constantly reminds us she was born in 1924 she was raised in the depression she had so many other things going on that she's so conditioned in her oppression that she just simply cannot understand that she's in fact allowed to behave in this way and i think it's very specifically related to her uh, awareness as a woman and to her feminine identity feminine identity um, and feminist identity because you can see in other elements of her life you know at the beginning when they go to the bank and she she says she wants a bank account for her son the clerk says no and she says why not he's a human being he deserves you know so she wants to override kind of capitalism and just the you know society in several other ways she lives in this bohemian life kind of style But it's just those very specific things in relation to her and to women being allowed to claim their identities that she has the most problem with. And I think that's so interesting because you see Abby and Julie both and Julie's 17 and Abby's 25 or something. And even though they're both more open to feminism, they both react in different ways. And so I just think that that's so interesting getting that from these three characters. And I mean, you get it from the two men as well, from William um, and Jamie. It's it's not just about the women, but just seeing that in, in Annette Benning's character is, is really powerful. Mm, definitely. I really love the way, especially Mike Mills used objects to span time. So in the opening scene, we have a car on fire in a parking lot and it's like a, an accident. Then later on, we get cigarettes become really important. There's a particular scene with, with Elle Fanning's uh, Julie educating Jamie about it smoking cigarettes a pregnancy test becomes really really important so there's all these u- objects used as almost like polaroids of time so they like document mm. parts of the people's lives or they're used to show growth in some way and so and these are used alongside music particularly really really well to give a sense of Annette Benning's world you get quite famous songs like Basin Street Blues and in a sentimental mood but then for, to get you know the current 1979 era you get you get obscure songs you don't get pop singles you get like album tracks from the talking heads you get like you know un- like early black flag and this sort of stuff it's really it's shown in a really really interesting way in a brilliant scene involving uh raincoat's song fairy tale in the supermarket in which Elle fanning tries to bridge the generation gap by explaining the, the logic behind the music and this is i'll just use a clip here for a less successful example in which benning and billy crudup's william attempt to understand the hardcore punk pioneers black flag don't need to like it okay what is he saying Head on my shoulders. Going berserk. Right. Is that interesting? I don't know. I don't know either. I think we're maybe overthinking this. I just want to do a shout out to this really powerful scene towards the end of the film. So what we haven't talked about and what I find really interesting is the narration as well. So you've got characters talking sort of reflectively and then also talking about what will happen to them in the future. You never see it, but they do talk about it. And anyway, there's this wonderful scene towards the end of the film where Annette Benning's character, Dorothea, and her son, they sort of spend this afternoon together. And it really, it sort of suggests this is the first time they've had one-on-one outside of this sort of crazy communal living situation that they're in, pre-wheeling communal household, uh, for a while. And so we watch them hanging out and the kid narrates something along the lines of, I thought this would be a new beginning for our relationship. We'd share our feelings with each other, be more open. But maybe it was just one afternoon. Maybe that's all it would be. That's what he said. Mm. And he just sort mm-hmm. of lets that linger. And it's sort of like this 
idea of, I don't know, it was just really powerful, this sort of idea of temporal distance and suggesting that you're, you're seeing characters behaving in these very emotional moments and then hearing them sort of reflecting or gesturing towards reflection decades on and that sort of juxtaposition I found really yeah. quite Yeah, and what's really, really amazing is that you get narration from all five main characters. Yeah. It's not just one or the other and you get them both narrating their own life and you get them narrating their perceptions of other people in this little family unit um, and that's really great and I noticed that um, I mean, I think everyone did, but, you know, I was very drawn to that idea of them narrating sort of like from the future, but in a contemporary time. And I've got to give a shout out to my mum because I was asking her about like um, grammar and what we would describe this as. And she hasn't seen the film, but I was asking her, you know, like, how would we describe it? And she said, perhaps, it, perhaps you could call it historical future tense. Um, I don't know. I really like that term. Um, And so maybe that's the way that they're, that they're talking about these moments in their lives. Um, Mm. But you know, that reflection of these specific moments from a disconnected perspective is perhaps in some way the same as a photograph, you know, as you said, Andy, Andy, like, you know, these, these Polaroid moments and Abby is a photographer and she takes photos and she takes photos. She says she takes photos of the things that make up her person. And so Mm. she takes photos of records and things and she wants to take a photo of Julie, but Julie says, no, you don't own me. Mm. Um, And she takes a photo of Susan Sontag's on photography. (laughs) So, you know, there's all of these snippets of things that make up people in a really disconnected way. And everything is about perspective and, no one is whole in this film and that's what I find or no one is whole in the eyes of another Mm. and that's obviously part of the message is that Dorothea will never know her son Jamie as others know him and Jamie realizes Mm. he will never know his mother as a person he will only know her as his mother and so that idea of only you know knowing fragmented people is is really interesting yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting stuff going on, I think. I, I, yeah, I thought it was quite a, yeah, quite interesting. Yeah, and I also think we should point out that it's actually quite funny and a very warm film. It's really like an yeah. enjoyable thing. It, we might be like tearing it apart and academically yeah, talking about it, but it's really. Like, it's not a melodrama. No, I mean, no, it's, you a, know, it's, it's very, really warming. But yeah, also, it's, funny. it's kind yeah. of powerfully poignant because there is so much conversation. There's so many people sitting around conversa- tables talking or sharing meals, things like that. that yes. I, don't, I feel like yes. it's a much more 1979 thing than 2017. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I agree. And um, also Mike Mills is married to Miranda July, who, and they obviously have very oh. different... Um, <laughs> They're very different artists, those the two of them, but I think you do just have some of this warmth and this dedication to conversation and dedication to the human part of living and the experimental part of living that, that you see in Miranda July's work as well. Mm. And Miranda July can be quite eclectic and quite um, distancing, but she always has some really keen things to to say and to explore in terms of emotion and mm. you can see that very much in this film as well yeah, yeah um, in Mike Mills's kind of blend of yeah emotion and comedy mm. yeah 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 and I can I'm flummoxed as to how this only got one Oscar nomination and Benning was robbed. I'm going to join She the was chorus. robbed, and yeah. it was a it was a oh, bit really of a good. thing then mm. um, that yeah. she didn't get an Oscar nomination. Everyone was talking about it in January because this was released in the US in December or January. I think I saw it back then, um, and then it was delayed, long delayed in Australia, mm. but it's finally out now, thankfully. But yes, yeah. there was a lot of dialogue around Annette Benning. Oh, she was a shoo-in. Yeah. getting robbed, and 
she's yes still hasn't won one yet mm. yeah. well nominated twice well, she's, she's very good in this um, I also want to do a shout out to Billy Crudup that's two yes. podcast mentions in a row <laughs> so he's he's got a late career well not late career hopefully a recent career resurgence um, he's dreamy he is very maybe dreamy. a bit of an asshole but also pretty dreamy <laughs> and and Greta Gerwig too I thought was really yeah. good she dialed down her more Capital yeah. Q quirkiness. It was, yeah, she was really good. I know. I, I agree that Capital Q quirkiness, along with many other people, I'm sure, was, was beginning to grate on me. But seeing her in this was really wonderful. Yeah. And that commentary that she has where she discusses her cervical cancer and she narrates her relationship with her mother is just so... That's yes. another mm. thing where you can see this, um, this discord between generations, yeah. you know, because... Yeah. I don't want to spoil it, but, you know, you can kind of see that being explored there as well. And then Greta, oh, Abby trying to find another connection with Dorothea. It's it's quite beautiful. Yeah, yeah. I also want to give a shout-out to Penelope Spheris because uh, she made a documentary, uh, The Decline of Western Civilization" about the L.A. punk scene, and I'm pretty sure clips were used from that or it was directly copied in the, during the scene in which Jamie goes down to L.A. and hangs out with some punks for a while. Oh, really? Oh. And that's an amazing film if anybody's got the time and interest. Cool. Um, I just I can't believe we haven't mentioned it yet. It popped into my mind a while ago, but then I got carried away with something else. The one cultural element that, that Dorothea and her son connect over is Casablanca the film mm. Casablanca and I think that's really interesting the way that film is used and the way that they talk about it and the fact that it is such a cultural touchstone and it's turning 75 this year and we're still talking about it and it brings generations together and in its own way is about bringing together groups uh, or you know yeah. returning people home or what have you and the fact that that movie is what they relate to each other through is really interesting and also the use of Rudy Valley's you must remember this mm, as you yeah. know it kind of in the opening and in the closing credits is is really beautiful anyway i just wanted to mention that because it is really key and a lot of people might just think oh casablanca and then cast it under the rug but it's it's really well done here it's mm. a re yeah the, the pop culture references in this film i really really loved how he's reclaimed pop culture ref referencing from like pointless you know, yeah, sort of post ironic, <laughs> post-modern, uh, you know, kind of sensibility where you're, the humour comes from referencing something and that's an, a shared acknowledgement that we understand what the reference is to actually bringing it into this weird sort of exploration of how we use popular culture, yeah, to create, uh, to create our relationships with yeah. other people and yeah. ourselves. Yeah. yeah, and there's this one it's great really cool. where I don't know what they're listening to, Andy, you could probably fill me in, but they're listening, you know, Abby's listening to a punk record and Dorothy comes in and says, can't things just be pretty? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the I mean, Raincoats, an yeah. all-girl all -girl band from um, UK. Amazing. Yeah. yeah, and she doesn't <laughs> cast it off, but she really does listen to Abby when Abby tries to explain its cultural purpose. Oh, and that's glorious. what's so good yeah. about this movie is that everyone is so understanding. Frustrated, and, and but understanding. about each other. Yes. Yeah. I feel like we've lost curiosity. They're all, they're all very nice. They're really interesting I characters. Want I want to move in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. I said this back in January. I saw uh, Luca Guadagnino's Call Me By Your Name and then oh. this as well. And they're very different films. But I said of the two films, they were like the most realistic portrayals of human uh, relationships and desire that I've seen in such a long time. This mm. film I just think is very, very real. Absolutely. Cool.
And now to the Cultural Capital Film Diary. If you like adrenaline and altitude, then the Banff Mountain Film Festival may be of interest. This travelling festival showcases films about the mountain communities, extreme sports and the environment and is running at Melbourne Crown Cinema and the Astor from June 5th to 6th. You can find more details at banffaustralia.com.au. The Little Big Shots Festival aims to introduce young people to cinema through short films and that runs at Acme from June 8th to 12th. The documentary Keddie about the cats that live in Istanbul has gotten a lot of online attention for its content and birthed several thousand memes at least, and that's playing at Acme from June 9th until July 4th. Also showing there is Emma France's documentary Bill Frizzell, A Portrait, about the celebrated experimental guitarist and innovator that runs until June 10th. The Astor has some very interesting events coming up over the next two weeks. On June 6th, Luke Buckmaster will launch his book about the making of Mad Max with a screening of the film and a discussion with some of the film's crew. On June 11th, Ben Mendelsohn himself will be on the Astor stage to talk about Benedict Andrews' new film Una, in which he stars with Rooney Mara and Riz Ahmed. Other highlights from the Astor calendar include Starship Troopers on June 12th and Nacho Vigalondo's Colossal on June 15th, which is a film I would have loved to have talked about on Cultural Capital if we had time, as it's possibly the best film of all time that seems to be a star vehicle, is also a monster movie, but it's actually about a toxic masculinity. Other highlights of the Astor calendar include Nacho Vigalondo's Colossal on June 15th, which is a film I would have loved to have talked about on Cultural Capital, as it's possibly the greatest film of all time that seems to be a star vehicle for Anne Hathaway, and is also selling itself as a monster movie, but it's actually all about toxic masculinity. Great. Um, what's happening over at Melbourne Cinematheque? We are finishing up our Robert Mitchum season oh. with uh, Out of the Past, one of his oh. most famous noirs, Jacques Tournier. A directed film starring Jane Greer. Now, it's excellent. One of my favourite noirs is the kind of cheapo copycat film called The Big Steel, also starring Robert Mitchum and Jane Greer, uh, which is just lots of fun and is on DVD if you want to check that out. But Out of the Past is, is also super great and screening on 35mm to be followed by The Sundowners. Fred Zinnemann's film where Robert Mitchum and Deborah Carr pretend to be Australian. And it's filmed in colour in our outback, so there you go. And now to Mubi. Uh, Eloise, do you have any picks from the current slate on Mubi? Well, I'm going to surprise absolutely no one here and say <laughs> that you all need to go and watch The Beaches of Agnes, ah. um, which you have 22 days more to do. This is Agnes Varda's 2008 memoir, cine memoir, perhaps like a, a bio doco kind of um, essay in which she explores the history of her own filmmaking career and her own life in some way and kind of goes to these places that she loves many of which are the beach um, mm -hmm. and kind of discusses why she loves them so much. Agnes Varda just turned 89 and is the greatest and most adorable woman who is currently making films and has been making films for a really long time. And mm. Her latest one just played at camp. Yeah, and it's currently odds on favourite to win the Oscar for Best Documentary. Is it? Yes, Faces Places is another film about her life. Between now and um, when is it? February next yeah, February, year or yeah. something? So <laughs> this is from people who know like what documentary is coming out over the next okay. 10 months and they're saying she's head and shoulders ahead of the right, race. Right, anyway, I'm super curious to see this new one. But yeah. 
you know, she made some fiction features earlier on and she's been making a lot of films about her life. And I think she said something at Cannes when she turned 89. She said, I love cinema. I live cinema. I feel like all my life is cinema right now. And so it just is so fitting that she's making these films about her herself. Anyway, that one is my number one film that you should all watch. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm keen to check out The Birth of Love, La Maison de l'Amour, um, Philippe Garel's 1993 film about time and friendship, I think. I don't think I've seen many, if any, Philippe Garel films, so I will confess. <laughs> and thankfully, Mubi's got my back with a mini season of Philippe Garel at the moment, so... I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I don't, I don't really... I can't say I even have much knowledge of his filmmaking. He's got a really attractive actor son, doesn't he? He Louis does. Garrel? We're not yeah. allowed to talk about him anymore because he's in that atrocious looking Goddard film and I'm so sad. Oh, yeah. Oh, where he plays Goddard, doesn't he? Oh. Yeah. He's <laughs> super attractive, but he's just out the window for me now, unfortunately. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. The film looks atrocious. It we looks... can review it if you want to get some like heated Eloise discussion. That's a good idea. I'll mark it Some I can't remember. <laughs> Someone said it's like it, it takes a lot of effort to... To, uh, it, he had a very poetic <laughs> way of saying a lot, something on the lines of this is a cardboard cutout facsimile of what Jean-Luc Godard is this film and it's like how do you do that with a man who is so complex I don't know mm. but anyway the end we don't need to talk about that movie no okay let's instead talk about another film on movie which is Max Ophel's 1950 movie La Ronde which is one of the most strikingly beautiful black and white films I've ever seen and in true Eiffel style, he doesn't just put beauty on the screen for the sake of it. He gives it really good uh, context. And in this case, La Ronde is uh, a story about illicit love, which tells uh, of 11 sexual encounters, each interlinked by a different person. So one person goes from one sexual encounter, has a certain social interactions, winds up in with another person, and then you go around before coming, coming back to the uh, sex worker that you started with. Um, and so you were also like narrated through this by Anton Walbrook, which is somebody whose voice I wouldn't mind narrating my life. And you get a really rich snapshot of Vienna in 1900. Both Andersons, Paul Thomas and Wes, cite Ophuls and this film in particular as a key influence on their work. And you can see the sense of scale and also the, the simultaneous attention to detail as well that was kind of born perhaps here in Ophuls' work. And I'm hoping Mubi will also find room for earrings of Madame Dürr and Letter from an Unknown Woman at some point. I have those on DVD. Do you? Oh, yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah. Um, that's on uh, movie for another nine days. Um, and if you like the sound of these recommendations we've given, or if you want to check out other stuff that movie has screening um, at the moment, you can go to movie.com slash cultural capital and get an extra month free if you sign up using our code. <laughs> um, and then you can enjoy months and months more movies as a member of movie.com. And yep. I, I just want to point out that the many sins of Valerian Borowski just keep coming. <laughs> Jay, there's so many. There are there so are many so sins. So many sins. Andy's face is looking a little bit angry. I'm kind right of now, over it. It seems like filler. I think we can do better, but I'm not going to not going to slag off the entire channel just for those preponderances. Anyway, why don't you tell me about your kids? Why? Did you take my money? No, I was just asking for some. You're lying. Daniel! His name is Rule. He's been missing for more than a week now. Can you bring me some clothes? Where are you? Mum thinks you're dead. You know, you never touch me. Don't want me to touch you. And now to Blessed. Anna Kokinos is a filmmaker whose work is intimately entwined with Melbourne. 
probably most well known for directing 1998's Head On. She also made the 2009 film Blessed, which is our choice of a Melbourne-focused film to discuss today. A who's who of writers, including Andrew Bavell, Melissa Reeves, Patricia Cornelius and Christos Chalkas, adapt their play Who's Afraid of the Working Class? The film is split into two distinct halves. The first half follows the loosely connected stories of some working class Melbourne teenagers, mostly um, on the streets of Western Melbourne. And the second half of the film goes over the same time period, but takes their mother's perspectives. Adjacent to all of this is the story of a man who was separated from his indigenous mother and is coming to terms with the death of the white woman who raised him. Linking both halves of this film are some key visual motifs, including watching the characters wake, including waking up and staring out of windows. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it may be... It, it, sorry, I haven't given the visual motives enough justice there. It's anacocinal, so they're very... Yeah, there's some really interesting style going on in this film. Eloise, did you feel blessed by the gods of Australian cinema when watching this? <laughs> Um, that's not how I would have phrased it, okay. but, uh, I don't know if we have any gods, uh, of Australian <laughs> cinema just to like be um, a bit I'm Sorry, honest. Margaret and David, if you were saying But I really like this film a lot. I wrote a paper on it a few years ago and so I watched it quite intensely and was really engaged in the soundtrack and the soundscape. So the score, which I think is beautiful, is written by, uh, Excuse my pronunciation, Cesare Subisweski. Oh, yeah. Um, I apologize for that pronunciation. It was terrible. But it's beautiful, and he's, I believe, has composed for Nana Kokonos films in the past. And it kind of, I mean, it links the stories together. And so, as you mm. said, Anders, I think this film is told over one 24-hour period, first from the perspective of the children and then from the perspective of the mothers. I really love this film because it is so culturally and locationally specific in its connection to Melbourne. I just think that we are drawn so powerfully into the space of the city, into its particular suburbs. You know, there's all of these locations and sounds, trains used, suburbs, police, the pokies, the ocean that everything is so I don't know not slow but very deliberate in its depiction of space that we just can't help but get connected to it and the characters are imperfect that's part of that's part of the whole construction of it that they're imperfect characters and they're not very kind to one another but I still find it so um, engaging and I Look, I really think that it is the score music that, that does it for me, that makes it so in, intense uh, and makes me so connected to it. Anna Kokonos has said herself that this film is about the primal relationship of mother and child in its all its difficulties and devastations. And this movie, to me, is devastating. And the final scene is devastating, and I think that everyone should watch it. But, Anders, I know you weren't such a big fan. Well, it's a weird film i think it's a really interesting film and i recommend people see it but i don't but i don't think i liked it it's very depressing that's probably why i like it phase. <laughs> it's it's over but it's overwhelmingly depressing really but i i didn't feel any i didn't feel like it affected me in any major way um despite it's quite bleak and and getting bleaker subject matter i would almost say that it feels exploitative in that in some moments it's aiming for gritty realism and in others it's a much more cinematic sort of hyper stylism and at no point 
there's this sort of no point do the characters feel real they feel like sort of to me anyway they felt like melodramatic ciphers for a sort of a misguided or mythical idea of what the Melbourne working class is so I don't know I thought I thought that on a screenwriting and a narrative level it felt quite overdetermined you know very big points were being made through these sort of very bleak stories uh, one example is uh, I would give is one of the characters he's a teenager who the film suggests is sort of struggling with his sexual identity and so he goes to this abandoned warehouse and sort of essentially gets shot by filmed by a um, porn producer sort of masturbating in front of a camera and we hear this sort of faceless voice telling him what to do and the camera sort of intercuts between this teenager who's Cry, he begins like sobbing uncontrollably as he's um, doing it and then the sort of grimy warehouse walls and it just felt like a really awkward intermeshing of over-the-top storytelling to make a very sort of dramatic point I guess and then this stylism that I didn't think uh, it was just this very odd mishmash of things to me and I thought that's representative of the film as a whole. Uh, I think another problem is it's based on a play. So a lot of the sequences are monologue driven and then those sequences intercut with more sort of filmic uh, montages of characters moving or, and it cuts between this sort of long, maybe a bit overdramatic moments and then quite interesting, quite interesting exploration of, of Melbourne as a location. I mean, that wasn't a problem for me. The way I, f the juxtaposition of these longer monologue driven scenes and then the faster movement scenes i didn't find that to be off-putting or a dramatic failure in any way i thought that um you know a lot of these characters and the, this is the way it's played they're perhaps exploitative perhaps it is exploitative in some way but i found that these characters are like the the point of us exploring them and spending time with them is that they're all lonely they're so lonely and that's what those longer scenes really exemplify is that they are in fact lonely and alone and I don't know I remember being quite drawn to that scene that you just described but you know perhaps those shots of the wall just suggested that he was I don't know I'm you know gonna be quite it's gonna sound funny you know trapped or whatever within these walls of blah there is one lolzy moment which i realized when um one of the teens breaks into a an elderly woman's house and she's living alone and she's perhaps not all quite with it but he looks at her bookshelves and she's just got basically a lot of Karl Marx books and then he says I want your money and she says it's in the book and he goes and picks it up and it's Karl Marx's capitalism and all of these like notes from perhaps the 1960s that are no longer valid fall out of the book and I just I mean I'm sure it has some kind of symbolic meaning but it just it seemed a little bit stupid at that particular moment but I felt like so much else of it was very meaningful and you know I mean I think Anna Kokonos and perhaps some of the writers you know came from the the west of Melbourne and so were perhaps not to say that they have a right to talk about these characters necessarily but I feel like they had they were speaking from somewhere indeed yeah sure no um I I don't doubt their credentials at all I don't know it just it sort of got a bit, to me, it felt like it was a bit cartoonishly bleak and there's no sort of texture. Well, there's not much texture mm. and it gets kind of absurd. So th there's this moment where there's these two kids who I think they're, they're on the street because their mum, their, their mum's partner at the time is sort of abusive to them. And so they take shelter in a charity bin. So it's, it's this quite odd 
thing where they're sitting in there with a candle, uh, sort of, you know, spending the night in this charity bin. And then their oblivious mother, like, walks past in front of the charity bin, doesn't realise that they're, like, just there. And she's just sort of wandering off, you know, sort of a bit of a daze. And it, I don't know, I mean, that just felt absurd. Yeah, if you describe, if you put that moment in the script, it would be like, oh, what does that mean? That's so, you know, it's all her fault. Which I think the film... It's not all her fault, but the no. film establishes that, that there is some fault in the way that these children have been raised and in the system that that provides or does not provide for them. The film does enough in establishing that without having that kind of shot. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I think so. I and think so. So perhaps that is, yes, overdoing it a little bit. So for, for me, where this film fails, and I know I'm, I'm here dissing all these amazingly storied um, Australian playwrights here, but I think on the level of storytelling, it's just really, it's way too much. They're big, obvious points that are being made. However, on a formal level, it's really, really interesting. And I think that's what makes it worth watching. Yeah, okay. That's an interesting thing to, to hear. Mm. I loved it. I love how depressing it is. The <laughs> end is completely awful, but you all need to watch it and have a big, huge cry. Um, See, it didn't do any. It didn't affect me at all, uh, at all. I was so alienated from the drama at that point. Yeah, okay, interesting. It's, it was, to me, it had become absurd that moment. But all yeah. right. Anyway, if you go and but watch it, then please let us know yeah, what your feelings are. Did I think you it's worth watching. Or were sure. you, like, just cold, cold-hearted, left <laughs> on the couch? Um, where can people find Bless? Well, it is on DVD. It is on DVD. I borrowed this from the Melbourne Uni Library. Um, I own a copy. Um, so people tweet to you and ask to borrow it. <laughs> yeah, or come around and watch it with me. I'm, I just love to watch it. You've only seen it 15 times. Yeah, it's yeah, fun. I could do with a few more. But I believe, I mean, I don't know, I assume it's probably on Ozflix. I'm not actually signed up to Ozflix, so I don't know. Yeah, maybe start there and see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Thank you very much for making it to the end of Cultural Capital. It's episode 27. And Do- for sticking with us for a whole year. Yeah, for thanks. 12 months of I know, cinema. we're so appreciative, especially to those who've written, and written reviews and given us five-star ratings. Yes, Thank you or very much. faved our tweets. Yeah. We love a good fave. Hit us up there. for some birthday cake. <laughs> you can follow us on Facebook, if you're not already, at Cultural Capital Podcast. We're on Twitter at The Cult Cap Pod. And for me, you can find me at Andy Ricky. And I'm on Twitter at Anders Furs. I'm on Twitter at Eloise Low Ross. And um, we think you're wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mm-hmm.